It's good to see so many people out tonight. (laughs) I frequently do a bit of travelling around the countryside for work and recently while driving I've been listening to an audio book which um, expounds on Jesus' parables and I've really enjoyed learning about how amazing our Lord was at using stories to convey um, his teaching um, and truth. And I was amazed at how the Lord could convey so much through these stories. So tonight we're going to look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But first, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can be here tonight. We thank you that we can come freely and hear and look into your word. And I just pray that you would give clarity and help me to convey something tonight and that you would receive the honour and the glory, Lord. And we do pray that um, we would be able to listen and get a blessing, Lord, from your word. And we pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. First, let's touch on why Jesus taught parables. Um, In Matthew 13.10, Jesus' disciples asked him why he taught in parables. In verse 11, Jesus said, Because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given, referring to those who didn't believe in him. In verse 13, he continued, Therefore I speak. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. In verse 15, For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. If we hear God's truth and continue to reject it, it can be taken away from us. This was true for the Pharisees who thought God was less righteous than he was and they were trying to build their own form of righteousness. But in reality they were, as the Lord said in Matthew 23, 27, hypocrites, like under whited sepulchres which indeed appear beautiful outward but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. In Romans 10, 2-3, Paul wrote, For I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. Paul spoke with authority on the Pharisees because he used to be one himself. The disciples of God, those who followed and seeked after his truth, the Lord would expound the meanings of the parables to them. It says in Mark 4, uh, 34, But without a parable spoke he not unto them, and when they were alone he expounded all things to his disciples. I chose to speak on the parable of the rich man and Lazarus because it's a story that's always stuck in my memory whenever I've heard it. Jesus' teachings had that kind of response. The people who heard it were so often astonished by what he said 
and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus would not have been any different. I haven't made it easy for myself choosing to preach on this parable. Hell is not the easiest or nicest subject to speak about, but it is necessary. No one spoke more about hell than the Lord himself. No one knows better of the eternal judgment that awaits everyone who ignores and disobeys the scriptures than the Lord. A few weeks ago, James Herringson uh, preached on the parable of the dishonest steward. This message was great and really challenging. The parable of the rich man and Lazarus comes right after that parable that James spoke on, so the Lord's worked that out well. With the dishonest steward, the Lord was teaching his disciples about not loving unrighteous mammon. And like so many other occasions, the Pharisees were, were too, um, the Pharisees were listening in too on to the Lord. And in Luke 16:14, it says, um, it records their spiritual reaction to what he said. In verse 14, and the Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things and they derided or ridiculed him. That means they turned up their noses at him. In verse 15, Jesus said to them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is uh, it's an abomination in the sight of God. So Jesus is directing his attention to the Pharisees and to anyone who believes as they do. He gives them a chilling testimony of someone who is just like them, someone who dies and goes to hell. So let's read uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through to 31. And I'll read it through from verse 19. There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously or luxuriously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented or in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, and neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. 
And he said unto him, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. This parable here in Luke is the only place uh, in the Bible where it's found uh, by Luke, the beloved physician. It is uh, also the only parable to contain the name of one of its characters. And some speculate because of this, it may... Uh, It may not be a made-up story, but rather an account of an actual event that took place. Whether it is an actual account or just a story Christ used to illustrate a point, it is still truth. It is a shocking warning from hell. It is a preview of life, death and life after death for countless religious people that pass into eternity. The main character in the story is the rich man. Unlike Lazarus, he has no name given. I've found that people over the years have given him a name, Dives, I think it is, after the Latin word for rich. But the Lord deliberately didn't give him a name when he could have, so I'm not going to give him a name either. The way the Lord identified him was only as the rich man. This would have painted the picture in the minds of his audience, the Pharisees, of a man that God was blessing. The poor beggar who has no dialogue in the story and who is set in contrast to the rich man would have been viewed in the Pharisees' mind as a man who God despised and was cursing. Verse 19 starts like most parables do with a certain man and he's a very rich man. He was so wealthy he could dress in purple, which was one of the rarest colours in nature and the most expensive to dye garments with. It was very prestigious and used for nobles and royalty. Underneath his robe he would have wore fine linen. This fine linen is probably a reference to the finest linen of the day, Egyptian cotton. It's probably still the finest cotton today. Egyptian cotton was the most expensive and the best, and he wore it, it says, every day. He was joyously living, which means to be glad and to enjoy oneself. It's the same expression as mentioned in Luke 12, 19. And I say unto my soul, Soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. The rich man had extreme riches, extreme self-indulgence and a lavish lifestyle. He's got it all, so to speak. He's the definition of what it means to be filthy rich. He feasts luxuriously like a king every day. He would have mixed with the rich and famous and been admired and envied by the people. The Pharisees would have been thinking, he is the man. God is so pleased with him and blessing him. In contrast, in verse 20, we read a certain beggar. In the Greek, it means extreme poverty. He has nothing. But unlike the rich man, he has a name, Lazarus. It is the Greek form of the Hebrew uh, Eleazar or Eleazar, which means whom the Lord saved or whom the Lord helped. And What a name to have. This Lazarus isn't the same Lazarus as in John 11, who was the brother of Mary and Martha and the friend 
of Jesus. So if the rich man was filthy rich, then Lazarus is filthy poor. Life for the rich man was as good as it gets, and for Lazarus it's as bad as it gets. In those days, if you couldn't work and didn't have family to look after you, you were in trouble. Life was already hard enough for the Jews, being under Roman occupation, so it would have been even worse uh, for Lazarus. Lazarus was sick and possibly crippled. It says he was laid at the rich man's gate. But the word for laid here that the Lord used is, uh, it can be used to throw down or dump, and it's not a delicate word. It shows us he is totally helpless and dependent on the goodwill and kindness of people that come upon him. He mustn't have had any family or relatives, or if he did, they've abandoned him and dumped him down at the gate, uh, the main entrance to this rich man's estate, to beg for bread, or in the hope that the rich man may have mercy on him. The word for gate is also the word commonly used for large gates, so it gives us another indication that the man was quite wealthy. It would have been like an estate, I assume, that he had. It says he is full of sores also and ulcers. The same word is used in the book of Revelations to describe the horrible judgment of God when the angel pours out the first bowl of wrath on the final judgment. In Revelation 16.2, it says uh, it becomes a loathsome and painful sore on the man who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Um, 16.11 says they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. So that gives us an indication of the sort of sores uh, that he may have had on his body. They're ugly sores. We don't have a diagnosis for the sores that covered him, but if someone throws you around and you can't move, you'll develop bruising and um, bad bed sores if you can't move. Somebody had some compassion on him and dumped him at the rich man's gate, though. The whole reason he was dumped there was to be seen by the rich man and hopefully out of the huge abundance of his wealth, he would have been given um, some compassion by him. So he was dumped there in that condition with open wounds, which indicates something of the raggedness of his clothes, um, exposing his body's wounds at certain places as well. It says the dogs would come and lick his sores. I'm not the biggest dog person. I don't mind dogs, but... Um, I don't like being licked by them. Um, in the Bible, every time the word for dog is used, it's always portrayed in a negative way. Um, dogs weren't a Jew's best friend, so to speak. I hate it when a dog licks me, like I said, but I can imagine that Lazarus would not have liked the dogs licking his wounds, his ulcers either. Um, if uh, he could have, he would have stopped them, I imagine. There's nothing good about the dogs licking his painful wounds, not to mention the germs and bacteria that they would have given him. It shows what a desperate state that Lazarus must have been in. I can imagine as the Pharisees were hearing this that they would have pictured Lazarus absolutely unclean, someone who was despised and cursed by God. Why was one man so wealthy and one so poor? 
one commentator read, had the Jew, Jewish people obeyed God's commandments concerning the sabbatical year and the year of Jubilee, there would have been little or no poverty in the land, for the wealth and real estate could not have fallen into the hands of a few wealthy people. Old Testament prophets also denounced the rich for amassing great estates and exploiting the widows and the poor. As Lazarus lay at the rich man's gate, he longed to be fed with the crumbs or morsels that fell from his table as he feasted. In those days when you ate a meal, you didn't use cutlery like we do today. Instead, you usually ate with your fingers, something that's been done for um, centuries and through all time. You would have used your fingers to dip and eat and to serve yourself. As you can imagine, they didn't use napkins like we would today. Um, it's said by historians that they would often use the pieces of bread, maybe older bread, and wipe off the oil and food that clung to their fingers, and then they would chuck it away under the table. So that is what Lazarus is desiring or longing for, the morsels that fell from the rich man's table. And doesn't say that the rich man ever gave him any bread. It doesn't say he ever gave him any attention or even any water. Like the parable of the Good Samaritan mentioned earlier in Luke, the priests and the Levites see the half-dead man and pass by and do absolutely nothing to help him. And then everything changes. An event that will happen to everybody, death. The only ones that could ever escape death are the believers when Christ returns and raptures his church. But until that happens, death happens to everyone. As we can only expect, because of his condition, it says in verse 22, the poor man dies. And he is carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, or right to Abraham's side. He doesn't just scrape into heaven, nor is he placed under the heavenly table, so to speak, but he is placed right next to Abraham, a hero of the faith. A position of great honour for anybody, especially the Jews. As Abraham was the father of the Hebrews, God's chosen people. How often must have the Pharisees said, we are the children of Abraham, or we have Abraham as our father. Hearing that Lazarus was carried by the angels right to Abraham's side must have shocked them, as in their minds Lazarus was obviously cursed or an outcast by God and society. But Jesus gives us a beautiful picture, God collecting one of his own and carrying him right to Abraham. There is no more suffering for Lazarus, no more pain or hunger. It reminds me of in Revelations 21.4 and it says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. What a blessing and a hope for the future. Back in Luke 16, we see that the rich man then also dies, but he gets buried, the Bible says. There was no mention of the poor man ever being buried. We can imagine that like the rich man's life, he would have had an expensive Jewish funeral. 
with paid mourners, costly spices and an elaborate tomb. It must have been a great display of his wealth and fame. Everyone would have known the rich man had died. I was wondering if anyone had even noticed that Lazarus had passed. Death takes place when our spirit leaves our body, but it is not the end. In light of eternity, death is really only the beginning, a beginning of a whole new existence in another world. In verse 23, it says, In hell the rich man lifts up his eyes and he is in torments or agony. What a total shock. If we can imagine the very worst grief we've experienced in life, the very worst guilt we've ever experienced or the most agony, the most depression, like the absolute worst we've ever been, then multiply it by infinity and add that the knowledge that there is no hope, no relief for eternity, going on and on and on in outer darkness, that is something like what hell is like. Can you imagine living a life of luxury filled with every pleasure, being the guest of honour at every event that you went to, having access to the best of everything the world could offer you, never needing anything, and then the horrifying realisation that you've died and you're now in hell. You are very much aware and you feel everything. This must have shocked the Pharisees. It was so obvious Jesus was aiming this parable directly at them. They were the most religious people who ever lived, but they trusted in their works and their heritage to get them to heaven, just like so many people today. And just like the rich man, they are going to one day die and they're going to lift up their eyes in hell in agony. When it says, in hell he lifts up his eyes, it's like he has only just realised the reality of hell and what he trusted in to keep him out of hell didn't work. It's now forever and too late to change anything. His eternal destiny is fixed. There's nothing he can do now that will ever change his current state. In life, the rich man was known to everyone but now in hell he will never be known again. He needs no name as no one will ever call for him. The beggar, a nobody in life, was a, uh, who has a name that God gave him, is now honoured beside Abraham. The translation for both uh, after death is instant. The transition, sorry, is instant. There's no soul sleep or annihilation or purgatory that may uh, one day come to an end. He's very much conscious and aware of his surroundings and is in torment. Most people today, if you ask them, believe that they are good people and when they die, they're going to go to heaven. They think any good deeds they've done will convince God that they're good enough to get into heaven or at least uh, keep them from going to hell. After all, they aren't as bad as other people out there, are they? There wouldn't have been a Pharisee there that thought that they themselves were going to go to hell. 
The Pharisees, like many people today, had made a religion of doing good works, which um, they thought or they convinced themselves would earn their way into heaven. In Luke 11:42, the Lord says, But woe unto you, Pharisees, for ye tithe mint and rue and all manner of herbs and pass over judgment and the love of God. These ought ye to have done and not to leave the other undone. The Pharisees prided themselves on their good works and their apparent righteousness, but the Lord had very little to say about them that wasn't negative. In Matthew 23, verse uh, 25, the Lord says again, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortions and excess. People can put on a good show. We don't know what's going on in someone's hearts or thoughts. But that isn't so for God. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, The Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. In verse 23 in Luke, it says, The rich man sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus right at his side, and he cries out to Abraham, saying, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Here the rich man now pleads for mercy, and he is pleading on the uh, basis that he's a Jew. The thing he trusted in and thought would get him into heaven didn't help. He's, he's pleading as a Jew to the father of the Jewish race, Abraham. The one who had no mercy in life now pleads for mercy in hell. It's interesting that he doesn't say he shouldn't be there. He never says, hey, there's been a mistake, I shouldn't be in here. He knows he deserves to be there in hell. He cries out to Abraham to have mercy on him and send Lazarus that he would dip the tip of his finger in water to cool his tongue because he is in agony in the flame. He's still looking down on Lazarus, though, and viewing him as a servant by asking Abraham to send him. It's said that hell is not remedial, meaning um, hell isn't there to be like a cure for their condition. He's in there to be, he isn't in there to be changed, like some may think of purgatory, which doesn't even exist. Rather, it is punitive, which means it's purely punishment. He's being punished forever for dying in his sins. So he's asking for Lazarus to come to him and he's pleading for relief. He doesn't even ask for a cup of water or a bucket of water. He's only pleading for a single drop of water from a finger. It isn't a big request. He cries for one drop to cool his tongue as if it is as much a fire inside of him as it is on the outside. The pain he is experiencing in the flame is so great, so agonising that if he could only receive one tiny drop of water on his tongue, it would give him some relief, even if it would only last for just a moment. Then Abraham replies... um, Then Abraham replies to him, 
Um, I don't think that this is a normal situation going back and forth where people in hell are going to be able to call out the people in uh, heaven asking for relief. Um, I believe Jesus is just creating a scenario here for the purpose of the parable and it gives us a powerful and incredible warning of what the rich man is going through and that's the point. I don't think it would be too exciting to hear that in heaven, people calling out to us from hell. So Abraham replies and says, son or child, acknowledging he was indeed one of his descendants and saying, Remember that you in your lifetime, you received your good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and you are tormented. Abraham asked the rich man to remember back on his life. He still has all his memories, all the memories of his life. How he was so blessed, all the pleasures, all the comforts, all the good things he received throughout his life. And to also remember the evil things that Lazarus received at his gate because he was so unloving and had no mercy on him. He never lifted a finger to give Lazarus a drop of water or any of the dirty bread that fell from his table and now Lazarus can't help him. Memories that now will be with him for all eternity. In verse 26 it says their current state is fixed. Between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, an impassable chasm, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from hence. If you find yourself in hell, you can never leave or go to heaven, or likewise, anyone in heaven cannot go to hell. Their eternal destiny has been fixed or sealed by God. When he realises there is no hope for himself, that um, how he is now, he will be for all of eternity, his thoughts turn to his five brothers that he has that are still alive. It's the first time he's done anything nice. He doesn't want his brothers to come where he is now. He knows his brothers are just like him, bound for hell. He pleads to Abraham again, saying, I pray thee, therefore, Father, that thou would send Lazarus to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that Lazarus may testify unto them, lest they should also come into this place of torment. What the rich man is saying here, basically, is he didn't have enough information if he just knew how bad hell was, he wouldn't have ever come to that place. He's asking for a sign of Lazarus, returning from the dead and going to his brothers to witness to them. He believes that if they see Lazarus rise from the dead, then they'll repent. The rich man and his brothers must have been aware that Lazarus had died. Otherwise, what good would have it been to send him back to them? I can imagine they must have been relieved when Lazarus died and stopped begging for bread at their gate every day. Maybe they feared if they gave him bread that others would come, kind of like seagulls at the beach. If you don't feed them, you only get one or two annoying you for a chip, but if you feed them, then you get hundreds come along. I'm sure, though, considering how rich he was, that giving some bread to the poor wasn't going to send him broke. 
Famous people today do good works for homeless people too, and it is a good thing. It helps them, whether their motives are good or bad. So in the rich man's mind, if Lazarus returns to them from the dead and testifies to them, then everything will be good. That would overcome the missing information he didn't have and his brother's need uh, to help them repent and be saved. But Abraham says back to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. The rich man replies, no, Father Abraham, if someone returns to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham simply says back to them, if they won't hear Moses and the prophets, then even if one rose from the dead, they wouldn't be persuaded. The rich man never heeded to the warnings by Moses and the prophets. That expression, Moses and the prophets, is another way of saying the scriptures. It's the Old Testament, which when the Lord was ministering to them had been completed for about 400 years. They didn't yet have the New Testament because it was just being written. But what the Lord is saying here is that they had enough information to be saved. The Old Testament saints weren't any different than us today. Salvation has always come by grace through faith. In James chapter 2, verse 23, uh, And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. And James quoting there from Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham, who the Pharisees know, is in heaven with God. He believed God, he trusted in him and not in himself. And it was imputed for him to righteousness, it says in 23 of James. I wanted to make that point of saying the rich man was not cast into hell because he was rich. Abraham was a very rich man, it says, and he is in heaven. It was because of his unbelief, unrepentant heart to God. And likewise, Lazarus was not carried by the angels to Abraham's side because he was poor or crippled. It's because he repented and trusted in God, his helper. Remember the meaning of his name the Lord gave him, whom the Lord saved or helped. Gives us a sort of another little hint there that he was a believer. Um, Today, we have even more information than the Old Testament saints had. We have the complete inspired word of God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The Bible is so clear that there is nothing we can do of ourselves to be saved. We have to be broken and fall on God to save us from our sins. But if we don't, we'll be ground to powder under God's wrath. Matthew 21, 44 says, Whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. And that's speaking of the state that we have to be in to come to the Lord brokenhearted. 
As for signs which the Pharisees always wanted and which the rich man also wanted for his brothers to believe, these signs were never going to convince them of their unbelief. Jesus brought another Lazarus that died back from the dead, the brother of Mary and Martha mentioned earlier. For days after, four days after he died um, and stinketh, he called him from his tomb, the Lord did, and he came walking out of his with his grave clothes on, and many people around witnessed it. It was an amazing sign and showed the Lord's power over death. Do you know how the Pharisees reacted to that miracle? In John eleven forty six to 48, it says, But some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Then gathered the chief priests and the Pharisees a council and said, What do we? For this man doeth many miracles. If we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. It did nothing to convince them or to make them believe on him. Their hearts were so covetous and they loved their possessions and wealth uh, too much. It says in verse 54, Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. The Lord himself also died for us. He was publicly executed that all could see. Jesus died on the cross and bore on himself all of our sins, sins that would send us to hell for eternity and experience God's full, unmitigated wrath without end. He did it all because, as in John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved us. This all happened 2,000 years ago now. The things that Jesus did, John said in John 21 verse 25, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, for which if they should be written, everyone, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that should be written. But sadly, most uh, people today reject the Lord and the stories as being fables. And every second, people are lifting up their eyes in hell being in torment. The Lord's warning to people who think that they are going to go to heaven because of their own goodness is this. If you don't hear Moses and the prophets, if you don't hear the word of God and obey it, you are going to go to hell. Nothing else will ever convince them. The word of God is the most powerful message we can preach. We don't have to wow or amaze people with signs or wonders. And our testimony in life can influence people to want to hear or read the word of God for themselves. Second Peter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Matthew chapter 10 verse 28 also says, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. If you haven't repented and turned to Christ today, don't do anything until you know you are right with God. 
The rich man would have given anything just to have one more chance, but it's too late for him now. If you're still alive, it's not too late for you. You still have the opportunity to be saved. If you are saved, you have to live it and be the witness to the loss that God has called us all to be. We get great teachings at this church week after week and we are to take that knowledge and conviction and put it into action and be a witness to our families, friends and colleagues, work colleagues. We have to view the loss with their eternal destination in mind because one day it will be them who are pleading for mercy but it will be too late. I wanted to finish with Matthew 28 verse 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spoke unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Thank you.